Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, I'm going to just kind of shake things up a little bit. I'm not really sure what I, I actually do want to talk about something specific, but I want to talk about um, being on retreat a little bit. I was just um, at Viacito. Some of you have been there. Some of you have probably heard me. I'll talk about it for sure. Many of you have been there, actually. Um, I sat for seven days with a teacher named Mark Coleman. I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Coleman, but he's quite good. Um, uh, it was called Awake in the Wild, and the whole retreat we sat outside in the woods. We didn't go in the Dharma Hall or in the tent one time. So it was like we like brought our cushions out to like the meadows. We I literally was outside the whole time. It was really really good. Um, very Tejania, very open natural awareness, super easy, um, super pleasant, um, and. Uh, yeah, just an interesting way to practice. He does these nature retreats. Um, I highly recommend if you if you like nature, or if you like to try to do a retreat that's a bit um, non traditional. The whole retreat literally happens outside in the woods, um, and he teaches quite a lot. He's with you much of the time. I've never done anything like that. I've been wanting to do one of those for a while. It was really um, very enjoyable, um, and also too, just to say a few words about retreat. I um, I will mostly blame the pandemic to some degree, but I was just realizing I this retreat I just sat was the first retreat I really sat in about five years. Uh, and I really don't recommend at all that you let five years go by. Um, the last retreat I actually sat wasn't really a retreat. It was at Upaya Zen Center. It was actually about two or three days before the pandemic happened i was with cheryl sleen and her me and cheryl yeah. went down and sat a, a retreat with stephen bachelor at, at the upaya zen center which was kind of more workshoppy it wasn't a lot of sitting it was very zen like so I, to call it it was more of a study retreat to, to call it a retreat would be even a bit a bit of a stretch and then the retreat i did before that was a meta retreat for 10 days with steve armstrong and kamala masters up in uh, seattle at cloud mountain um, which was 10 days, which was actually was a really hard retreat. And that was right, right before Coyote was born. And then um, I was supposed to go to the, I did a program that was a year long program with three 10 day retreats. And I didn't go to the third one because that retreat took place well during the time Coyote was born. So I really haven't sat a, a long real retreat, 10 day retreat in, in probably five years. And of course, a lot of that was because of the pandemic. Nobody sat a retreat for about three years, I don't think. Um, and uh, uh, didn't sit last summer, kind of wish I had but it didn't really work out but now feeling um as somebody who teaches retreats and, and teaches this stuff all the time feeling a bit out of integrity to some degree around um teaching retreats without sitting retreats seems like a really bad move um and i think that uh teachers who teach retreats and don't sit retreats i think we have to be suspicious about that because um i was a bit surprised uh about well, of course it was a retreat i everything that happened you know it, it's a retreat you kind of expect it to some degree but i just being away from the screen and the phone just being in that isolated environment was really um shifted my perspective in, in, in quite a bit quite a lot of ways um nothing nothing huge but just remembering oh yes this is like uh mostly feeling totally restored rejuvenated and probably the biggest word would be inspired um you know, I, I just, there's just certain things that happen. Uh, those of you who have been on, most of you have been on some kind of a retreat at some point or another. You just can't, there's nothing that mimics that experience. I don't think there's anything else we can do in the, this world or this life that even comes close 
to the kind of experience that we have when we're unplugged and Viacitos is so great. The phones don't work out there. It's, it's, you know, miles and miles and miles out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so um, I'm teaching there in September with Cheryl Sleen. And I think there's actually maybe a couple spots. I think people canceled. So if you're interested, it's a 10 day retreat. Um, but uh, if you're looking for next year, definitely check out Viacitos because it's um, a very rare and special place. It's unlike most places. Um, so, uh, we've been talking a bit about, um, and I was really lucky. I, I, I feel like I, I've, you've probably heard me say this before. I have so much Dharma luck to the point where a lot of times I can just like grab a book off the shelf and turn to a random page and end up reading something that seems insanely profound. Um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just the way the Dharma is, or maybe just it's my karma with it, but it always just seems like relevant. And a couple weeks ago, um, we started talking about the awakening factors, seven awakening factors. And today I'm going to really specifically talk about the second one, which I unpacked to some degree last time we spoke to, which is called Dhamma Vichaya, uh, which you probably know my friend Cheryl Sleen. Uh, if you sat with her, she's big on this, uh, Dhamma Vichaya. And I was just reading for about five minutes before uh, we got on the call and came across this passage um, in Gethin's book about a, a, a scholar who I'm actually looking to named Edward Kahn's who went through uh, the entire Pali canon uh, and went and surveyed and even also multiple traditions and and looked and uh, discovered all of the ways in which this word Dharma is used and came up with seven distinct features. So I'm just gonna talk about those because I was really practicing with those most of the time on the retreat. The one thing that was nice about being on the retreat is because one thing I did do over the pandemic is I spent a lot of time uh, studying, reading, writing, reflecting on some of these these ideas to the point where they were so, uh, I've made them so internalized that I was actually able to really spend the whole retreat, I think, to some degree doing Dhamma Vichaya practice, exploring things like the four elements, exploring things like the five aggregates, exploring things like the awakening factors, and spending like three or four hours sitting in the woods, just contemplating, investigating, uh, looking at the awakening factors and just really playing with this stuff that's been so internalized for me. I didn't need to like pull it out of a book. I, uh, I, all this stuff just se it seems to be in my head. And it was a little bit actually overwhelming and exciting to some degree to sit there and be like, God, I have access to most of this stuff just in my memory. Um, and so um, that was really quite lovely to be able to just, and not, there was no sit walk. It was all his, Mark Coleman's whole thing, which I think is really quite important, is what he seemed, he, first of all, he's an environmentalist and he's a nature guy. He's a so, totally righteous dude. I love the guy. He's like my new best friend. Um, but he uh, is big on actually making the point of emphasizing that whether you're meditating, there's no, like whether you're sitting on a cushion or you're walking down the driveway, there's no such thing as meditating and non-meditating. There's no you know, like switch. The mind is just the mind. And so whether you're making toast or whether you're sitting on the cushion watching your breath, your mind is just your mind. And your mind is your mind all the time. And this, this very important emphasis that, that practices are really Dharma practices your life. It's everything. Um, and of course, there is value in sitting every day and having a formal practice. But being on retreat with him was nice because there was no, I didn't feel like I was switching ever. 
It wasn't like, okay, now I'm going to sit, now I'm going to walk, and now I'm going to take a shower, and now I'm going to eat lunch, and now I'm going to go lay down. That got burned out like by day two. There was none of that. There was just practice the whole time. And the way he does his schedule made it really easy for that to happen. Um, so to just go through these, I don't think we're going to do a practice today because I want to talk about this and I want to field some questions. So I'm just going to talk about these, these, these seven um, and then we'll have some discussion. Um, the first way that ne- that uh, the Dharma, in no particular order, is uh, talked about is that of Nibbana. You've probably heard me harp on about Nibbana. Nibbana would also sit very well with the third noble truth, which is classically understood as the, the end of suffering, uh, which is, uh, I think, not the right way to think about it. Nibbana, it's not the Eightfold Path leads to Nibbana, but Nibbana is the condition that leads us to be able to walk the Eightfold Path. Uh, and so, Dharma and Nibbana are actually really thought about as synonyms. So uh, Nibbana as a quality of mind, as a quality of heart uh, that is absent of greed, hatred, and confusion, that is a coolness, but also a warmth. Uh, And actually, it is really understood to be as a state of mind. Nibbana is an innate state of mind. Everybody has it. Um, It's also trainable, meaning that you can do these practices and to some degree i think largely what we're doing in buddhist meditation is we're trying to recognize and experience and cultivate the quality of mind that is nibbanic that is basically non-reactive the mind that's not trying to get anything not trying to get rid of anything it's all the awakening factors it's contentment it's ease it's mindfulness it's a it's a very dynamic mental state that you've all experienced many, many times. And, and I think that it's sort of when, when the Buddha talks about what he awoke to in, in the Dharma and his awakening, he awoke to, or he uncovered really, I think, the experience of Nibbana, that there is a quality of mind that we can access in any moment of our life that is a non-reactive quality of mind that is present, that is at ease, that is actually very natural. It's not a uniquely Buddhist thing. It's not this thing that Buddhists do. It's a, it's just a, a quality, an innate quality, a natural awareness, something that the mind can do. Um, and that that is really probably the best way to think about Nibbana is that Nibbana is Dharma practice. It's the third noble truth. It's really, and in fact, ironically, the whole Zen tradition, the whole Zen Buddhist tradition is built on this idea. That's what that's what the, the sitting Zazen is really the expression of that, the awakened mind of Dogen. Uh, the great Zen master says, we don't, we don't practice to wake up. We practice as an expression of our awakening. So when we sit, we sit in, in, in valuing saying, yes, this is, this is what I am about. This is a quality of mind that I, that I appreciate. I'll go on and on. I won't because Nibbana is a big thing. The other way that it's thought about, uh, technically, uh, it, it's an order or kind of a law of the universe. It's kind of a way things happen. Probably the most colloquial way to think about that is Dharma could easily be translated as nature. Things have nature. Uh, and and, and one, some, one of the movements that, that's very parallel to the stuff I'm doing with Stephen Batchelor around secular Dharma is something that Gil Fransdale and other teachers are doing, which they're calling naturalistic Dharma, which is kind of correlating um, that Dharma, translating Dharma as nature. And just as we know that nature has a nature to it, the sun comes up, plants grow. We all know about biology and science and all that stuff, but that's, that's all a study of nature. 
and what they're saying here is, is the Buddha saying that there, there's, a, there's a natural order to how things work, right? There's a natural order to, you know, there's things like gravity, there's things like biology, there's things like agriculture, there's, there's a nature that we can recognize, that we can verify, and this is largely what science has done. So it's really hard to argue against this idea. But trying to see that Dharma nature as nature is that the mind actually, the mind has its own nature. So you've probably noticed that the nature of the mind is to grab at things that are pleasant, right? That's built in, that's natural. It's not, and really this natural way of looking at it is so helpful because it takes, it takes all the pathologizing out of the mental experience. It takes all of the, the way we pathologize the mind is good and bad and right and wrong and should do and shouldn't do. Of course, that's part of our life, but we also have to realize that we, we are, whether we like it or not, we are um, subject to, and to some degree, dealing with the demands of our body, of our organism, which has a nature to it. It has a natural way in which it moves towards which is pleasurable. It, it resists which is unpleasant. That the, the, a lot of the, the theory of mind in, in the Dharma is the Buddhist pointing to the nature of the mind. This is how the mind behaves naturally on its own. Um, and that, that's a really important way to see things. And, and that was one thing that was really interesting to do on the truth, being able to sit for hours and just be like, yeah, like, I got to the point on day three or four where I could sit in the forest and realize that the sound of the birds or the sunlight on my skin or my butt sitting on the cushion uh, and the thoughts arising in my mind were all arising out of the same field, which was, which was a bit of a non-dual thing. I don't want to go down that road, but realizing that that experience is all arising from the same ground. Uh, the ground of dependent origination, the ground of mindfulness, everything is arising out of the same field. And it's just us, it's just my mind that says, well, this is my thought, and that's that bird, and that's the sun. And, and the way that you can sit and you think that there's external experiences happening, sensory experiences, and there's internal chatter happening, but all that stuff is coming out of the same place. It's all coming out of our experience. And so being able to sit for days and just being like, wow, like, the sound of the bird and this resentment that I'm rehashing about this painful thing that happened 10 years ago, they're all coming from the same place. And so you get a nice space of that. And really the thing that was funny and I was talking to Mark about, it's like, you know, you walk around the forest for four days and I don't judge anything. I don't look at anything and say, oh, that, that's a weird tree. Like what a stupid tree, like with it's leaning that way. Like everything in the natural world in my mind is perfect and organized absolutely correctly. And everything in here is just shit and bad and wrong and terrible. I'm like, how does that actually happen? Like everything out there is perfect and fine. And everything in here is totally fucked, you know? And, and, and so breaking that down and being like, no, no, it's all just the same. It's just, all this is my conditioning. Right. And getting, getting a break from that for multiple days was like really nice. Just being like, and, and in a kind of an anatta sense of like, this is just kind of what's happening. It's all coming out of the same place. It's all rising and passing away. And, and, and if I can let that happen, that's really what Vipassana is. Whew, what a nice break from having to judge and to assess and analyze this is a good sit. This is a bad sit. I had a better sit in the morning. It was, there was none of that. Of course, it took three or four days to get there. <laughs> So nature and Nibbana are also parallel. We, we could go on and on. I'll just keep moving on because I don't want to get stuck. The other way that it's thought about, and this is where it gets more into Abhidharma theory, is Dharma is oftentimes translated as, uh, in quotes, a truly real event. And that is what would be considered a mind moment. That the mind is, of course, is not a thing that exists 
the mind is not a noun. The mind is an event that occurs. So the mind is an event that arises and passes away in every single moment. And when we practice in this way, we see a thought as a thought. We see a sound as a sound. We see a judgment as a judgment. So the way that the Abhidharma gets really technical on this stuff is a, a truly real event. What they say is a Dharma or a Dhamma is the smallest unit of discernible experience. What is this? This, this is a thought. This is, what is this thought? This is a memory. This is a painful memory. This is a fear memory. This is a shame memory. So trying to be able to discern what it is in the experience that's arising that I can discern. This is where the noting practice of the Mahasi tradition is really, really helpful. Um, which some of you will be with me in August. We're going to be doing this the whole seven day retreat, the mentoring retreat. This is all we're going to be doing is looking at these kind of uh, discernible units of experience and trying to really uh, be able to really um, understand uh, that what arises in the mind and breaking that down of like external, internal. So this um, Abhidharmic theory is, is, what is this? Right? What is this? And I had this interesting experience. I'll try not to go too on and on because I'm, I'm still a little spaced out. You might be able to tell. And, um, I came home yesterday. I thought I was fucking tripping. It's like coming back from 10 Grateful Dead shows being on acid. Uh, <laughs> it was nuts. Um, but I was sitting one morning. It was maybe the fourth or fifth morning. And I was sitting in, in the field. The sun was, it was like perfectly beautiful. I even had a cup of coffee. It was great. And I had this nagging sense of dukkha, this nagging sense of dissatisfaction, this nagging sense of like, yeah, this isn't so great. Like, why do I do this anyway? I've just been sitting in the fucking woods all week. This is not going to help me. Like, I got shit to do. I have money to make. I got problems to solve. Like, you know, just all that kind of shit. And, 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 I, and I would kind of go back and forth to that. And I finally got really angry and said to myself, I said, you know what? I said, what is your fucking problem? <laughs> like, let's just get this over with once and for all, mind. Like, what is it? Like, just, I'm, I'm here for you. Let, let's just hear it. What is the fucking problem? And, and I got all this information. It was nothing that I didn't already know a million times, but it was really just like um, one of the things that I do um, that some of you can probably identify with is one of the, is overcom- I'm an overcompensator. Uh, and a lot of that stems from trauma. So what happens is something really bad happens in my life. Uh, and instead of experiencing that or feeling into that or acknowledging that, I immediately go to, well, I'm going to do this other thing to make this other thing okay. Like, instead of dealing with this, I'm just going to do this other thing that's going to be epic and huge and awesome. That's going to be like, that's going to make up for that. And, you know, you start creating that habit and you start to kind of, you start sweeping shit under the rug. And then you start having this goal oriented way of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make it basically what it is. It's, it's a, it's a sankara. It's a mind function that's trying to say, I'm going to make everything okay. I'm going to make up for, I'm going to not deal with. I'm going to even out things by overcompensating over this way. And I got a big hit of that and I was like, oh man, that's exhausting. I got to figure this one out. So that was really nice uh, to see really the emotion of, of the grateful sorrow, which you've probably heard me talk about. I haven't talked about in a long time, but um, this idea that, that, that you can be really, really sad and really, really joyful at the same time and that both are true. Um, and that was really, uh, you know, you, you all have been on retreats. It's like, you know, basically I like was there for seven days. It was mostly pleasant, but I had one hour in the seven days that really, really was a lot of insight and really, really made it all worth it. And that was that one morning. So being able to see these, the, being able to see that, like, 
you know, being mad and be like, well, what is your problem? And then being able to see, oh, okay, like, it's not that there was a problem, it's that there's all these strategies that are going on to try to avoid the fact that there's a problem, trying to make everything okay. Uh, and so you can get into all kinds of behaviors and all kinds of ways of living and all kinds of things that we can do in the kind of vain attempt, in the foolish attempt to try to make something okay or all better now. That clearly wasn't okay in the first place. Why the fuck would you do that? Why are we trying to make horrible, traumatic experiences that probably actually shouldn't have happened? Why would we try to make that okay? Well, because we don't want to feel, experience, acknowledge the pain of that or the sadness of that. So it's kind of a brilliant strategy, but I don't recommend uh, that you use it. Although I, I suspect all of you are doing some of this in some form, <laughs> some way, shape or form. Um, so that, that's, that, that, that's it. So, so Dharma as a, as a truly, what is this? Uh, for those of you who, who've read Stephen Batra's stuff in the San Zen tradition, they actually, that's all they do. They sit and they ask the question, what is this? What is this? What is this? That's, and he did that for like seven years. Uh, there's also another guy named, um, who wrote a book called Breath by Breath, Larry Rosenberg from the Inside Tradition, who sat in that San South Korean Zen Buddhist tradition, and that's really all they do. Um, the other way that's also kind of um, related to this other one is uh, the is Dhamma as a mental percept or a kind of uh, what's called uh, an aspect of Chitta Achetasaka, which is another uh, unit of discernible experience, but it's being able to, this is where the 52 mental factors in the Abhidharma come in handy. With it. This is desire. This is a decision. This is non-hatred. This is hatred. This is this percept. And so what it is, it's actually, um, it's not necessarily what's happening, but it, it's looking at the projection that the mind puts on that experience. One thing that Mark said early on that actually fucking blew my mind uh, really helped me on the retreat. I'm so glad he said it. It was a quote from Ajahn Sumedho about knowing. He said, see if you can be the, be the knower rather than become the conditions that are being known. And so... So like, you know, I'm sitting there and so the conditions are being known. I'm knowing heat. I'm knowing unpleasantness. I'm knowing pain. And what I'm doing is I'm so identified with the conditions. I'm not being, I'm not the knower of the conditions. I'm becoming the conditions. It's hot. There's too many flies. Why can't we just go sit in the fucking lodge? This is ridiculous. This guy's going to make me sit in the woods all week. You know, like, I don't want to do this. Just all that shit. And it's just like, because I'm becoming so identified with the conditions rather than just knowing the conditions. And so I spent much of the time being like, what are the conditions being known? And realizing that as soon as conditions become known, as soon as I understand heat and temperature or sadness, I completely become identified with the conditions. That's what I become. The whole moment, the whole experience be basically becomes those conditions. And so when you look at, this is where Tibetan Buddhist psychology is pretty good, I think, uh, is they say that with these mental percepts at every single moment, when the mind is looking at experience, it's either projecting qualities onto the conditions that aren't there, or it's omitting qualities that are there. So when we, when we look at a different experience in life where we're projecting shit onto life that's actually not there, you know, you're probably familiar with that. We call this projections, you know, uh, you're projecting your shit onto me, or we omit, which is we're not seeing 
qualities that are there we're not and this is really kind of sad because this is where like being in nature it's beautiful and a lot of times we're we're in a lovely beautiful experience and what we're doing is we're we're not seeing that for what it is because we're usually caught up in whatever our current drama is about life whatever's going on the little drama i can't enjoy sitting in a beautiful field in nature because i'm you know whatever it is i'm caught up in some little drama that i haven't resolved or that i'm worried about or concerned about so those things get omitted um this one i this one i think is super important i won't say much about it because i haven't been able to find much but another way that dharma is actually this would be the fifth one um is just is just talked about is that of sila or ethics or behavior that there is actually a tremendous emphasis on dharma practice being not just uh not just these first ones i've mentioned which are really kind of about mind experience but is more about how we engage so dharma practice largely is an engagement with the world that is probably the most i think and this is just kind of where i'm going and, and a lot of the work that i'm doing putting together this mindfulness-based ethical living program with Stephen, is we're trying to define first of all um redefine mindfulness which has been an interesting practice um and then um defining ethics uh in terms of well, what are buddhist ethics anyway and really thinking mostly about the the, the probably the most easy way to define ethics is that of a Brahma Vihara nature. And so Buddhist ethics, of course, we have the five precepts and we have all these things, but it's not, we want to stay of, we want to stay away of defining ethics in particular behaviors, like one should or should not do, because that turns into morality really quickly. But trying to see ethics as a Brahma Vihara expression of like, okay, like the ethic is kindness, okay? Like, so, so not getting so caught up in the nitty gritty of what's going on, but can I be kind here? As an as a, as a actual ethic, uh, can I be caring, you know, and when things are painful, when things are hard, can I be in a more, can I see the ethics of care rather than uh, getting caught in just resistance and wanting to get away with and, you know, wanting, I don't want to deal with this person and their bullshit again, you know, get away from me, this is too hard. Trying to see gr gratitude or appreciation as an ethics, an, an ethics of graciousness, of being able to that to enjoy that what, what's enjoyable, to participate in the joy of life as kind of an ethical uh, endeavor. You know, and to some degree, I like that because I do some to some some degree feel ethically obligated. Um, I feel ethically obligated to enjoy the beauty that's here in this world, whether it's a good plate of food, a nice walk in nature, uh, watching a Disney movie with my kid, you know, a lot of these things that we, uh, that we engage in that we don't necessarily, and I think it's really interesting if you reflect on that to see a gratitude or to see uh, joy as kind of a, an ethics of living. Uh, that we we want to really want to bring that in. And what this does when you use Brahma Vihara as an ethical map, at least I'm thinking about it this way, it does take away, it takes away the morality around trying to say what specific behaviors one should or should not engage in. Uh, because that's very, I think that's very personal. And so when you look at this word sila, which you all know this word sila, which is kind of impossible to translate because sometimes it's translated as morality which i think is not good and 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 more liberally we would translate it as ethics which is okay but still not great really what sila does is it sits somewhere between the two and where what where where what is that space i don't really actually know like what is the space somewhere between morals and ethics and so the reason why the brahma viharas i think are so good here is that that space is that um 
I have, some morals are very personal. Like they're my views, they're my values. They're the things that, that I think I should and shouldn't do. Like I don't, as a moral, just to be, make it real obvious, I have a moral value around drugs and alcohol. I just don't drink or do drugs and alcohol. And that's a moral, personal value for me, right? But for me to project that on everybody else is not really cool, right? And so that's not really, so, so what I want to try to do is hold that value. And then the ethics becomes, well, I hold this value for myself, but can I be kind and friendly and understanding to people who do drink? You know, like, why, do, why am I imposing my, so when I impose my values on other people, then um, I'm out of the spirit of kindness. I'm out of the spirit of tolerance, which is a key ethics and uh, secularity. So it's really, really hard. It, like, you know, like I am not a supporter of Donald Trump, uh, but I do encounter people who are once in a while. And so what do I do in that space? Do I, do I try to talk them out of that? Do I, do I stand on, what do you do there? Well, if, if ethics, if, if my ethical disposition is that of kindness, well, then how do I be kind in that space? And can I abandon or at least suspend my moral value on that space? And, and so the, the choice becomes what's more important right now, kindness with this other person or my perspective? Does that make sense? Now, if you really want to start living that way, holy shit, that is fucking hard. I mean, that, that is why I think the Brahma Viharas are the greatest ethical map, because they leave lots of space for ambiguity, and they leave a lot of space for uh, breaking things like right and wrong down. Also, what they do is they remove contempt, which is the most destructive emotion of all. And really, when we get in our moral high grounds, like, it's really hard, you know, you know, when I'm driving down in Colorado and the F-350 Ford truck goes blowing by with the big Trump flag hanging up in the back and the fucking shotgun in the back window, it's really hard not to have contempt for that person. It's really hard to let them drive by and not go, this fucking idiot. You know, like, I mean, I just like really have a hard time not doing that. But, you know, I'm not bad or wrong for having the thought. The question becomes, you know, if I, if I run into this person at the gas station and we both go in to get a bottle of water and I run into this person, how am I going to relate to them in that experience? I'm still allowed. It's still okay to have the privacy uh, judgment and whatever happens in my mind that's going to arise. We're not going to get rid of that, but it really, really ups the game. Um, it really, really makes, um, it also takes away, which is actually really kind of a problem. I think what's called Buddhist exceptionalism, um, and that is this idea that you know, Buddhism is sort of the smartest, you know, most intelligent, most best, perfect, better than all other religions attitude. And uh, which I actually think is true. And at the same time is not that fucking helpful. You know what I mean? So, so then, so then, I, so then, I, so we're in this space a lot. And then the equanimity, of course, the ethics of equanimity is, can I, uh, can I have two thoughts at the same time? Can I really actually think this person's a fool? Can I really, really uh, think that I hold the better position? Can I really be in that space and also be kind? Can I not like you at all and still be kind to you at the same time? Can I do both of those things? I'd like to be able to do, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, but that's the kind of, uh, I think, uh, way we wanna think about these practices. And this is really, really hard. And, and I could go on and on. There's just social issues. There's political issues. We have things with friends. We have things with our family. We're always coming into conflict with the other human beings, as I'm sure you've noticed, even if it's just on a screen, right? So when we think about Dharma practice as an ethics, then we really, uh, 
And, and the good thing about the Brahma Vihara map, I think as an ethical map is really, really good because every school of Buddhist thought would, would adopt that opinion. That's not just a unique, that's not just some small thing that is part of, you know, certain Buddhist traditions have their sort of things. Like, you know, they talk about emptiness a lot in Zen and uh, the, the, the Tibetans talk a lot about more about compassion than the Theravada. And so certain schools have certain things that they overemphasize and underemphasize. But every school of Buddhism, as far as I know, uh, definitely places a lot of emphasis, at least theoretically, on the importance of the Brahma Viharas. Uh, as a heart practice, um, and as a Dharma practice, and as an ethics of living, um, which really um, is an engaged Dharma practice. It's how we relate to the world, right? It's how we relate to the world, and, it, and it's very ambiguous. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but try it sometime, you know? It's really, it's really interesting to try to be kind in a situation where you where you can just feel the visceral conflict or the anger or even the contempt. Um, and I think it's, it's really an equanimity practice of being able to do both. Um, I hope that makes sense. We can talk about that some more. Um, the other way, and this gets a little more technical back to the Abhidharma stuff, is that Dharma practice is oftentimes about a characteristic or a property. So like characteristic is like, um, like the three characteristics are a perfectly good example. This term lakana, uh, which is uh, translated as, as characteristic, um, the three characteristics of, of impermanence, uh, dukkha, and not self, that that's kind of rich. But also, if you look at the Abhidharma, if you look at all 52 mental factors, they all have characteristics. So they also have a function and a property. So the one thing they do in Abhidharma thought that they don't do in early Buddhism is they really get down in the nitty gritty of this stuff. Like what is what is the characteristic of mindfulness? Well, mindfulness, the characteristic of mindfulness is to be able to recognize an object. Um, what is the characteristic of hatred? The characteristic of hatred is ill will and resistance. Um, and the, the three lakanas is basically Dharma. That's where Dharma practices oftentimes the core of it, the core foundation is that uh, is that living experience is a con is an experience of constant change, life, mind, experience, the world. The primary characteristic is characterized by constant changing, constant rising and falling, which, of course, as you all have heard many times, we all know that that's not a conceptually challenging idea to understand, but to to live to actually live with the change of life, uh, fucking wicked hard, right? So this is why wisdom is so important is that wisdom isn't about what you know, it's about what you know how to do. So wisdom isn't even a noun, wisdom is a verb, wisdom is a practice. So I might know that things change, totally believe it, totally think that I accept it, but when I'm faced with real change in my life, which I am every day, little setbacks, things that you thought were going to happen don't happen. Uh, somebody says they're going to do something, they don't do it. You know, this, all this stuff is when that's actually happening in real time, how do I do? You know, and I have a range of failures and success with that probably every single day. So, uh, so Dharma as a characteristic, what is the characteristic of, of things that they're changing their, their dukkha? Uh, they're, they're not self, which is, you know, these ones get harder. Um, I, you know, as you know, I'm not a huge teacher of not self. I think the teaching mostly causes, there's a lot of unintended consequence with the teaching of not self, but I really sitting in this retreat this week got a lot of like, a lot of it in terms of like, oh yeah, 
this is all of what I'm experiencing are things that are happening. And, and to me, it's a gestalt. There's moments where I feel like I'm sitting in a field in nature. I'm the, prota I'm, I'm the protagonist of the experience. I'm Dave Smith, this person sitting in a field. I had that experience. And I also many times had the experience of I'm just experiencing sounds and sights and colors and memories and emotions and and none of it's mine. It's not I'm not experiencing me. I had lots of that. And then I would kind of go back and forth. I'd be like, no, no, I'm really Dave Smith and I'm this person on this retreat who's not having a good time, who's not gonna get what he wants for lunch. And I don't see why I can't just get a fucking turkey sandwich at the retreat and you know, all that stuff. Uh and not that. So I think when we're saying it's not that there's a self or that there's a not self, it's that there's a combination of the two. And that's, it's always ebbing and flowing. Sometimes there's a lot of it. Sometimes there's a little of it. None of it's me, but it all feels like it's happening to me. Right? And so that's a nice, uh, and, and I will have to say, uh, as much as I do kind of mostly like the Dave Smith character, I actually find it to be a little bit more enjoyable when he's not around. <laughs> You know, it's a, you know what I mean? Like things just go a little smoother when he doesn't show up with his list of opinions and assessments and shoulds and shouldn't be's. You know, that's a that's a, a preferable experience, although one that is not necessarily easily acquired. Um, and of course, the last one, uh, which is not much to say about it, the Dharma is the Buddha's teaching, which is probably the the way that most people think of it. The, the, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. I'm sure you all know that um, he taught Dharma. Um, and that's what we practice. We practice the Dharma. And really what Dharma is, is the Buddhist thing. You know, that's his thing. That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's all about, this Dharma thing. And so um, anyway, let, let's just open up. For, if you have any questions or you want me to drill down a little bit more on some of this, if you want to ask me any questions at all, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about anything. But I, I thought I would mention those because I was really happy to see this in the book because, you know, I teach the Dharma, I practice the Dharma. And, you know, in 30 years, I haven't come across these, nobody, I never saw the list of seven things the way that it was described. So it was nice to see uh, the complexity of it. And it was also nice to sit for seven days and be able to see all of these things to some degree um, as a kind of holistic way of, of working with my mind and my experience. So uh, I'll stop there um, and love to hear what's on your mind or any thoughts or questions you have this morning.